I pay homage to the Buddha. I pay homage to the Dhamma. I pay homage to the Sangha. So I think for a few years now, I honestly don't know how many years, seems like people have been talking about the uh, mental health crisis in the United States and America. You know, how many people are dealing with depression and anxiety and a whole lot of other stuff. With a special focus on on people on the, the younger side of things, you know, people on their, their 30s, their, their 20s, their teens. And I sometimes wonder why it seems that the the younger people seem to be diagnosed more than, than previous generations, you know, or things especially stressful for people on the younger side of things or, or not. But either way, it does seem that perhaps we can have a more nuanced conversation about something like, say, anxiety as something uh, more existential, not something so easy to pathologize something that a lot of people can be affected by throughout their life, something that we all feel to greater and lesser extent. And I think that we've had uh, a big lesson in this, uh, you know, the last few years, you know, especially since uh, 2020. And I bring all this up because a while back, I'm not sure how many, how many months ago now, uh, it was during one of my talks here at IBMC, and we were on Zoom, and someone asked a, a question in the chat, and it was one of those things where I didn't get to see it until we were we were right about to end. And someone had asked me uh, if my practice had been affected by the pandemic, and it was a question that stuck to me, and something that I, I wanted to uh, to address because it's it's worth talking about. And I will say in a very short way that, well, the way it's affected my practice is that on the outside, not a, not a whole lot, but on the inside, well, there's just much more anxiety to work with. You know, uh, one of my teachers talks about how many traditions all over the world have, have meditation practice. You know, we're, we're not the only ones. But a lot of other traditions, it seems you know, they're, they're meditating on something different, you know, they're meditating on, on God, or they're meditating on a lot of abstract objects, or they're meditating on different kinds of visualizations and envisioning different energies and planes of existence. But in Buddhism, we're one of the traditions that meditates on the mind. And so we get very, very attuned to precisely what's happening in the mind. And I'm someone who's been anxious his whole life. And I've had a lot of help along the way. You know, I was sort of a, a strange kid to a lot of people because I was into fantasy and sci-fi and liked dragons and wizards and stuff. And I had a, a mom who was very concerned how people viewed me and would go into it again and again, drilling a certain pattern in my head to the point where I became very concerned of how I was viewed by others. To the point where, you know, I was a man in my 20s who was kind of afraid to answer the door or his phone if it rang, you know, that kind of stuff. Now, to be fair, I kind of had some of that social anxiety to begin with. 
you don't spend all your time as a kid reading books and med meditating in your bedroom if you like being around people from the onset. So there was already some of that there. But our experiences shape us. And so mine has been a, a life uh, with a big presence of anxiety. And for a long time, I thought my issue was really anger. Because when it comes to being a man in America in particular, there are only certain emotions that are okay to share with others as a man. And anger is one of them. Being vulnerable, being scared, being panicky, not so much, but anger. And so it's the case in America that a lot of men, when they're feeling anxiety, it manifests or it presents itself on the outside as anger. So I spent a lot of time as an angry person, only after a lot of this process of being a meditator and learning more about psychotherapy and stuff, realizing, ah, here's this anxiety. But I'm also an existentialist at heart, so I think that anxiety is this thing that exists for everyone. You know, every one of us feels, has this feeling, and some of us are more or less affected by it. So that's what I wanted to talk about, you know, anxiety and, and how it, it weighs on the mind and, and how this, this path that we're on is, as Buddhists help with it. And I'm making the existential distinction just because on the clinical end, I think things would get a bit more murky, you know, because then we're talking about possible uh, treatment plans, then we're talking about possible, you know, medications and things like that. But in the path itself as a Buddhist, you know, following the Buddhist teachings, I think we can talk about anxiety in a more existential sense, the way it affects everyone everywhere. Because it does. Because we all have these concerns about how we are and what we do and how we feel and how we're viewed by the other, how other people think of us. That's my big thing. I'm constantly convinced people don't like me. I'm constantly convinced that people have the wrong opinion of me. And I, I live in a state of perpetual apology, <laughs> feeling bad for the person I am. That, that can be tough. And it's something that I, I have felt throughout my practice. And so if I don't seem like someone with social anxiety, then, hey, it's working out. But on the inside, there's always that voice in there. Which is why I think it's important as Buddhists to realize that we have multiple voices inside. And that anxiety voice is just one of them. And part of the practice is learning to not always give it the megaphone and over time not giving it the megaphone at all. Because we have a lot of other voices inside that might be more worth listening to. And in that respect, I have found the entirety of the path helpful in that way. Helpful in addressing the various anxieties and concerns that I feel. Especially, uh, and surprisingly, when it comes to uh, the aspect of the path in right conduct. You know, the whole Eightfold Path, we can break up into three broad categories. Sila, Samadhi, and Panya. With Sila being conduct, or essentially our behavior, the things that we do. And really, when we're talking about behavior... We're really talking about our intentions and their results. And that can be really helpful for someone who has a lot of anxious thoughts, who's concerned about whether or not they're a good person. And man, so many of us are con concerned with being good people. One of the most shocking things for me to realize was how it can affect someone that on the outside seems flawless, perfect. One of my idols is uh, Fred Rogers, you know, Mr. Rogers, you know, from the neighborhood, you know, that guy. 
And someone who lived his life seemingly so stellarly, an example uh, to others, a kind, gentle person, you know, a vegetarian when it was still really weird to be a vegetarian, a, you know, a minister who found a way to teach in a way that wasn't uh, beating people over the head with a, with a message. You know, he was just a kind person. And at the end of that long, storied life of good deeds, on his deathbed, he turns to his wife and asks, Am I a lamb? Which was his way of saying, Am I a good person? Am I close to God? Imagine, at the end of the life, he's, he's still worried about that. So it shows that many of us are concerned with that. How we, we truly are. Are we actually good people? Are we doing good? Are we loved and accepted and, and everything else? So when we start thinking about our behavior, our conduct, our, our habits, sometimes it's, it's best to just bring it down to its simplest. And for a Buddhist, that's looking at the, the five precepts, but really polishing them, making them shine. Not just looking at what we're, we're not doing, but also looking at what we do instead. You know, in, in no particular order, you know, we can look at something like, uh, you know, the precept against taking life. And we can really work on that. And for a lot of us, it's not too hard to not take a life, but we can even shine and polish that precept to the point where it becomes something more like everything that we think and we do, our, our intentions and the result of those intentions are about being life-affirming. You know, the same thing with, with taking what is not freely given. We can easily learn to, to not be a thief, but then we can polish that precept to the point where it becomes about how we can be generous with ourselves and generous with others. Finding a way to be generous and helpful in our actions, our intentions and their result. And it can go onward that way. You know, even, even the precept uh, with, um, you know, intoxicants. You know, we, we as Buddhists know that we don't want to intoxicate the mind to the point of heedlessness, to the point of being dull and, and leading to delusion. So we can really polish that precept. So it's not just about abstaining, but it's about actually bringing practices into our lives, bringing things that we do that bring clarity to the mind. Rather than, you know, diluting the mind and leading to heedless, heedlessness, we become heedful and we become bright inside. You know, there's this term in Buddhism of a, of a luminous mind. And that's one of the things that we're trying to do. And it can be very helpful that way at the beginning, because what we do then is we look to a standard outside that's easy to apply. And over time, it becomes something that we internalize. It becomes something that we do naturally as, as a way of being. And it can help cut through this uh, tendency people have with anxiety, someone like myself, to keep running over our actions over and over and over again. The moment you make a mistake, it sticks with you forever. I still remember lies I told in first grade. I still remember <laughs> things that I stole when I was like a 10-year-old in a, in a you know, Toys R Us. Like all of these things, you know, and I can give more embarrassing examples, but I think you get the point. And... When someone has an anxious mind, what happens is that that person with those anxious thoughts will run through it again and again and again. And with, with each turn of, the, of that thought, there's just more shame and more guilt applied. And it starts reinforcing the thought, I'm a bad person. I'm not good. I can never be good because I've done these things. Whereas when we look at the Buddha's teachings on precepts and on conduct and habits, we see that we look to the past not to measure whether we are a good person, but instead to learn from the results of the actions and then endeavor 
to make changes, endeavor to not do those things again. And if we can make it that simple, live in that way, it takes away that tendency, that desire to just ruminate over mistakes and start reinforcing the habit of learning from mistakes, of going through them that way, just it becomes this, this big story we can tell ourselves. And so as Buddhists, we want to take that story out and pare it down. What were my intentions? How did I go about it? And what were the results? And that was the Buddhist teaching right away. That's some, one of the things he taught new monks in his tradition. He even taught it to his own son. That the mind, we can turn towards it like a mirror and, and see what's reflected there. We can look at our actions and reflect that same way. So that's what we, we endeavor to do, is to understand our behavior in that way. And to see the results. Not get caught up in whether we're good or bad, but to look at the results. Is this leading to my long-term welfare and happiness? Is this leading to the long-term welfare and happiness of others? Without spinning wheels. And then that becomes the, uh, I would say, the, the kernel of the next part of the path, which is uh, samadhi. Why do we meditate? And there becomes the, these two parts that we can emphasize in why we meditate. One is because when we meditate, we seclude ourselves from all the distractions that don't allow us to actually look at the mind. So in the onset, we, we go somewhere, hopefully quiet, we sit down, and we seclude ourselves. And we try to make where we are a good place to be. We try to turn it into a place where it's easy to be. And we practice in such a way that we find pleasure and peace in that present moment. And that in itself gives us a break from the spinning wheels that go on in the mind. It gives us a break of, and gives us a place of, of peace, which can become a place where the mind, after a while, naturally wants to land, wants to perch. In my, in my eyes, that's how I view what the, what the Buddha meant by learning how to make ourselves an island. You know, the, the, I don't think that the Buddha meant that we shouldn't uh, necessarily rely on others or have friendships or live in, in the world, you know. But I, I do think that he realized that sometimes we need to be able to find that place by ourselves where we, we can live without distraction. And that's what it means to be an island. And when we view it that way, we can sidestep what I've seen in some people, which is to really struggle with, with the Buddhist teachings on, on skillful friendship, but then also seclusion. You know, how, how can the Buddha say that the whole of the path is skillful friendship, kalyanamitta, you know, admirable friendship, but at the same time, don't rely on others for your own salvation, go be secluded. And uh, my teacher points out, because he's from the, the Thai forest tradition, that uh, Monks that go off in the Thai forest tradition to be by themselves too much tend to get a little weird after a while. And he says it's actually of their benefit to go off by themselves for a while and then come back to the community and then go off again. And in the practice of a lay person, what that means for us is that when we find those moments of seclusion, it's often in the form of having a, a dedicated meditation practice every day, even if it's uh, only for 10 minutes but making space for that on a regular basis of finding seclusion so we can find a peaceful place to rest. Uh, a pleasant abiding here and now is the way the Buddha would talk about it. And as we make this pleasant space to reside, uh, 
we also find another aspect of meditation that becomes very important. We realize that as we're sitting to meditate, that we actually have far more control than we think. That we're not just a passive recipient of what's happening in the body and happening in the mind. But because we have intentions, because we, we have an active aspect of the mind, we're able to manipulate things, move them around, shift them around. And what we find is that there's an aspect of, of meditation that is about exploration or even play. The fact that we're able to adjust the breath in a certain way so that it becomes more pleasing, more delightful, easier to stay with so that the mind doesn't wander as much. And that when we breathe certain ways, that affects the body. People with anxiety know that your body and your breath, when you're anxious, all sorts of stuff starts to happen. You get the, the weird feeling in, you know, in your stomach, and your heart, your breath changes. But then you realize that you can actually breathe in a certain way that begins to relax that. And the tension and tightness in the body begins to, to let go. And you can feel the whole body beginning to breathe in a more relaxed way. And you begin to realize, like, ah, there are tools here in this meditation that I can use to affect my mood, to change my state. And then with that, you can then turn towards the mind and see the habits play out. What stories are happening? And which ones do we gravitate toward the most? And what can we do in response to that to shift the mind towards something else? If we're caught up in the stories, how can we disengage from that particular story and find a better story to pay attention to? One that's more helpful. Uh, I can't remember how many talks ago it was, but I was talking about the worlds that we create and how in, in the, at the center of each of these mental worlds, these landscapes that we create, is a kind of identity. And that gets back to this whole idea that we have many voices uh, in our mind. My teacher talks about it as the committee of the mind. There's a lot of people arguing with each other. It's like politics. And we, ha we, ha we tend to give the microphone to particular ones over and over and over again. And what we can start doing is taking that microphone away and giving it to other voices and letting them speak. So if the narrative in our life has been that we're not a good person, we begin to move towards looking at the good that we've done and the good that we can do right now and the good that we can do in the future and make that our emphasis, our point that we focus on. And recognizing when we can give, give light to other kinds of perceptions in the mind, realizing that we don't have to just think or feel a particular way, but then try to generate other kinds of thoughts and feelings. One of the most powerful gifts we can give ourselves when we're meditating and finding these kind of things emerging in our mind is compassion. Compassion for that part of ourselves that is hurting. Compassion for that part of ourselves that needs healing. Compassion for that part of ourselves that really isn't convinced that we are good. And that's the way we can acknowledge our own imperfection while still striving for perfection. And I think that's a necessary part of the path because I've seen so many times with certain people that they're, they're so convinced of their imperfection and they're so worried that they could never strive towards the perfection of the noble ones to be like, like the, the Buddha and his noble disciples that they give, a, they give away the possibility of ever being perfect or the, the whole notion of perfection goes out the window. Whereas we can be gentle with ourselves and acknowledge where we are and be okay with that's where we are right now while still striving for the nobility in thought, word, and action, the nobility of the noble ones. We can still do both. 
They're not exclusive. We can bring acceptance, equanimity, and compassion to ourselves and still strive. Strive for what the, the Buddha envisioned as the ultimate peace, the ultimate, ultimate happiness. We can do both. And that requires that, that act of, of, of meditation as a part of our lives. Building new habits. And that habit of, of seeking seclusion and solitude. That habit of turning away from, from sensual desire for a time. Being able to meditate in such a way that we're able to put aside the hindrances, be able to put aside various forms of, of clinging for a time, just to find a pleasant abiding here and now, and then build on that pleasant abiding to something that's able to really see the mind and see the points where things can change. And it can't change all at once. This is a gradual path that we're on. But there's always some aspect that we see that we can, we can adjust and pull this way or that to improve where we are right now. And that brings us to the, uh, the third aspect of this Eightfold Path, which is uh, panya, wisdom or discernment. A lot of the time we talk about wisdom as, as this thing that happens at the end of the path, that we're only wise once we've done all the work of, of our conduct, our behavior, and done the work of, of samadhi. And the truth is, we have that wisdom in us in some capacity in the form of discernment. That's actually why I like that translation. We have the ability to look at our actions and look at our mental states, to look at what we call these, these uh, five aggregates. You know, they're all, they're all acts that happen within this body and mind. You know, we're, we're forming, we're feeling, we're perceiving, we're fabricating, we're cognizing. And in, in each of these, we can begin to, to see how, how they function. We don't have to have some kind of superhuman ability to, like, see at the microscopic level like, like, a, like a superhero, like Superman, one of my favorite superheroes. People always give me a lot of flack for that. They don't like him, but I do. And he's also, he has all sorts of crazy powers. When it comes to, to discernment, it's really just the ability to, to look at how we're affected by our habits, which includes our habitual thinking, which includes the way that we, we continue to, to talk to ourselves. And this, you know, I say, recognizing that, that it is a, a gradual path and a gradual practice, you know, uh, many of you who have heard my talks before know that, I, you know, I've been a, a meditator and, and a Buddhist since I was, I was 12. And, you know, some, some Westerners, you know, convert Buddhists are, are quite, like, surprised by that and, like, they, they delight in that because, you know, I know people who, who didn't stumble upon Buddhism until they were in their, you know, 30s and, and 40s and, and so on. And that was the big turning point in their lives. So when they hear that, like, my big turning point was at 12, they're like, wow. And it's like, it really wasn't, you know. I, I just liked meditation. I liked, I liked Buddhism. And it was something that I, I applied to my life. But I was also perfectly capable of making a lot of the same boneheaded mistakes a lot of people make in their teens and 20s. And, uh, and so it can be quite, quite humbling to be like, oh, yeah, I've been Buddhist this long. But then it's like, well, but I'm, I was also for a long time just like everyone else. It, you know, uh, it gave me some tools. And over time, those tools have become better, more refined. But 
we make mistakes along the way. In fact, that could have easily been today's topic alone, just the fact that as we're following the path, we, we make mistakes. And those in themselves can be learning opportunities rather than, than signs of defect or signs of a, of a bad practice. You know, um, I think many of us in the West take the idea of whether or not, whether we're good or not uh, to an extreme and then f follow it into Buddhism if we came from a different religion. And we become concerned then with whether or not we're a, a good enough Buddhist. Whereas we recognize in the Buddhist tradition that we're, we're not perfect until we're perfect. That is still a goal, the perfection of the noble ones. But in the meantime, we, we work with where we are with, with a gentleness. You know, my teacher talks about it uh, as the way you would hold a baby bird. You know, if you're too strict and, you know, or in this example, too tight, well, you're going to squeeze that bird until it, it dies. And if you're too loose and too relaxed, well, that bird's just going to slip through your fingers and fall out anyway. So, you know, this path requires a, a gentle touch especially uh, when, when there are those of us who are following this path that uh, do have, you know, stronger presenting problems. You know, we might be suffering through something like depression or anxiety or any number of things that, that uh, might seem like impediments on the path or things that make the path impossible. You know, a lot of people talk about how they can't actually practice Buddhism or they can't meditate, you know. Oh, I could never meditate, you'll hear from people. I tried for five minutes and I just completely gave up. And I was like, well, yeah, you tried for five minutes, you know. Um, and I think it's important to, to recognize that those things that seem to be holding, a, holding us back in the path could become in themselves what we call path factors. They become something that we can use as a part of our training. My teacher emphasizes how anxiety can actually be a good entry point on learning how to be heedful, which means you have way more going on in your mind that really incentivizes you to be a good student of the Dharma <laughs> because because you you already you already come in with a lot of caring caring about how you affect others and that's not a bad thing to care we should want to care so we end up having to do slightly different work whereas some people have to learn how to be empathetic for others some people, especially those with, uh, you know, social anxiety, have to learn how to balance that out and bring it inward. And it's like, okay, you've got enough empathy for others. Now it's time to have enough care and concern for yourself and balance it out in such a way so that you are of benefit to yourself and others, so that you are practicing for yourself and others. I'm reminded of a, of a story that you know, a lot of a lot of the Buddhists at my university talk about because, you know, we have a program and, you know, a master of divinity, which emphasizes Buddhist chaplaincy. But I like to think of it as just Buddhist ministry all around. And one of the suttas that we talk about a lot is the one on the acrobat, where an acrobat and his, and his apprentice are trying to figure out the best way to safely do all the things that they're doing, all the advanced tricks that they do in their act. And the acrobat tells his apprentice, like, you know, I think what I'll do is just put all my attention in what you're doing, and then you put all your attention in what I'm doing, and then that way we'll be able to take care of ourselves. And the apprentice says, like, actually, I, I don't think that's a, that's a good way to, to do this. I think what I'll do is I'll pay attention to what I'm doing, you pay attention to what you're doing, 
And if we both take care of ourselves, we'll be taken care of together. And that, that should be okay. And the Buddha says that in that example, it was actually the apprentice that was correct. But it doesn't end there. You know, uh, it's not so much that we, we in, in the Theravada tradition at least, only take care of ourselves. Rather, what it is, is we recognize that we have to take care of ourselves so that we are able to, to be good in the world, in this sense. Good, in, the, in this case, being skillful, you know, in the, in the, in the sense that what we're doing is, is of benefit. What we want to be is secure enough in this practice to be fed and nourished enough by the practice that we no longer need to feed on others, including our relationships with others, including all the, the thoughts and, and, and feelings and actions of others that we kind of wish we could control. I think people with anxiety, you know, speaking from my own experience, we care so much what other people think, and we can't possibly do anything about that. But if we focus on ourselves and the work that we have within in our own minds and bodies and make that our emphasis, then we're in a better position to not have to feed in that way because we're fed well by our practice. And so we're able then to go into the world and be a force for good in the, in the case of being an example. We, we end up being an example of, of what it means to, to have a good place to rest on, a good way of being. We can be a, a stillness in the world that's an example. And as we become more peaceful inside, we end up having a ripple effect on others. They themselves be, become more peaceful, more at ease around us. And that on its own can lessen and reduce that sense of anxiety. Because there's less of that nervousness in ourselves. That, you know, there's less of that, those things outside as well that would trigger us in the first place. Because we, we have this place to, to rest on. It's a good reminder for those of us that this is uh, a refuge. You know, we, we take refuge in, in the triple gem and it becomes our raft. You know, all of us, if we're talking existentially about anxiety and other things like this, are in choppy waters. And if we just keep trying to tread water, it'll just eventually get to the point where we go beneath the surface of the water. And then we keep struggling to get back up and break the surface again and again and again. But if we think of this path that we're on as Buddhists as a raft, then we're safely on that raft and we're able to navigate right on those waves until we get to the further shore. So then that becomes our way of being as, as Buddhists. So for my, my own practice the last couple years, it's just been more anxiety that I've had to work with, trying to turn that anxiety into a path factor, making it useful using it as a way of exploring my relationship to conduct or behavior, to meditation, and to the development of discernment or wisdom. And I'm not perfect at it, but I recognize that I'm still striving for perfection in a gentle way. That ends up being the way I do it. Okay, I think I will end there, and if there are any questions, I'd be happy to answer them. Thank you.